Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back with you and to uh, continue again in our series on the Sermon of the Mount called The Better Way. If you have a Bible or electronic device, if you want to get to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to begin this morning by um, just reading a couple of verses previous to the section we're going to be studying. Uh, verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Then down to verse 27, Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We've heard words such as adultery, lust. Obviously this morning I get to come back from a nice holiday and talk about sex this morning. We're going to see that as individuals and society, our society is best served when sexual expression is limited between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. Let me begin by just stating that premise. Our society is best served when sexual expression is limited between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. These are not my idea, it's not my idea, these are, this is the thoughts and ideas of Jesus. And today we're gonna look at the big picture both historically and from scripture, and then we're going to see why these straight-hitting words of Jesus are both good and life-giving, not just for you and me as individuals, but for us as a society and for our world. Now, I was born just before the 1960s. I tell you that, not to let you know how old I am, but to let you know that I was like on the cusp of what was known as the sexual revolution that occurred in the 60s decade in North America. I wasn't old enough to participate, but I was old enough to observe what was going on. And you may or may not be familiar with that age. Um, Think bell bottoms, tie-dye shirts, men with long hair, rock and roll. Uh, It was characterized by Woodstock in particular, where 400,000 people converged in the area of New York for a rock concert. And it was most significantly, it was an age of exploration with drugs and with free sex. Virginia Ironside is a writer, and she was a full participant in that era. And regarding sex, she says, it's difficult to understand this revolution of the 60s without first knowing the 50s and what they emerged out of. She says in the 50s, like, sex was completely taboo. Uh, She worked at a woman's magazine a a decade later, and journalists weren't even allowed to, to use the word bottom. So you couldn't use the word bottom of the garden or bottom of the saucepan. That was out of the question. If a reader wanted to know anything about sex, they had to write to what she calls the agony aunt. Some of you might remember Ann Landers. 
And Anne wouldn't really reply directly in the, in the paper. Um, she, the, she might enclose a stamped address, plain brown envelope, into which, if you were married, of course, she would insert a leaflet explaining the facts of life. Virginia said, my parents, who presumably had sex in order to have me, were totally reticent about sex. That means reserved, inhibited. They rarely, if ever, hugged in front of me, and if the subject came up, they zipped their mouths. She says, if you can imagine emerging from this repressed background into the swinging 60s, equipped with the contraceptive pill that had only recently become the hugely popular and completely reliable form of birth control, you can also imagine how ill-prepared we were, were all were for what was to follow. See, the reason that was given so often not to have sex back then was because, well, you might have an unwanted pregnancy, but now with the pill, that barrier was taken away. And, and, and Virginia says, to be honest, I mainly remember the 60s as an endless round of miserable promiscuity. She says, it was a time when it often seemed easier as a woman, believe it or not, more polite to sleep with a man than tell him to leave your place. Sigmund Freud had proposed, if we could just unshackle ourselves from sexual inhibition, if we could get rid of the religious inhibitors, how happy we would be. But looking back, what did that unbridled sexual expression bring to Virginia and her friends? Well, her testimony is contained in an article entitled, entitled this, We Paid for the Price for Free Love the flip side of the sexual revolution. And in that, she says this. After a decade of sleeping around pretty indiscriminately, girls of the 60s eventually became fairly jaded about sex. It took me years to discover that continual sex with different partners is, with very few exceptions, joyless, uncomfortable, and humiliating. Fast forward to the 2000s. Donna Friedis is a professor. She taught a course on dating and spirituality to her college students. And as she started talking and conversing with them, they started communicating back to her about what they call their hookup culture. And at first she said it was, they would say about how great it was, how fun it was. And she recalls after a spring break when they came back and they shared their exploits of their sexual activity, one of the classmates admitted I don't know why I do this. Does anybody else feel the way that I do? Like, is this the only option? And it started an open conversation which has led Fritas to research this cultural, cultural aspect more thoroughly, and now she frequently lectures on it. Frida says that college students believe they are to be casual about sex. That's what's expected of them. And there's so much pressure to say that you're part of it. She defines this hookup culture in this way by four characteristics. Number one, it can be anything from kissing to full-on sex. Two, it has to be brief. Three, you are supposed to feel zero emotion. And four, alcohol is usually involved. There are a few who would say they experience general satisfaction and emotional happiness in this, but when they're honest, the more common words go like this, regret, dirty, used, guilty, empty, ashamed, alone, duped, miserable. 
So Fridas has done surveys, and in it, she says, these are the results. 41% of them say they are profoundly unhappy. 23% are ambivalent. She calls them the whateverists. You know, whatever. 36% are more or less fine. But she says, just fine. They're not fantastic. They're not fabulous. The hookup culture has not delivered what they had hoped for. Well, what about porn? I mean, forget the personal interaction altogether. What, what about just going virtual, something that is easy and so accessible? And I've talked about this before. And like the other free expressions of, of sex, it does not satisfy. It only calls for more. Jesus' idea about sex stands in sharp contrast. One of the most tragic misbeliefs is that the way of Christ is set to steal away our freedom, to manipulate us, to control us, to restrict your well-being for the sake of control. But nothing could be further from the truth. So this morning, as we're, we're looking at the Sermon of the Mount, th- this is the time when Jesus sat down on a mountain and, and his close disciples were with him, but there were hundreds of other people in the vicinity, and he began to teach them. And what he's teaching them is the way of God's kingdom. He's teaching them Jesus' dream for the world. Th- these are his expectations and his hope, the way that life should be, the better way. He wants the best for his people, and his best and his way covers every aspect of their lives, and this includes sex. So we pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 5, and Jesus says, you have, heard that, you have heard that it was said. Jesus is referring to the laws that was given in the Old Testament most of us are somewhat familiar with it. Ten commandments were given, and, and one of those was this. You shall not commit adultery. And, and so Jesus is reinforcing the Old Testament commandment. It was good for people then. It is good for people now. Sexual relationships are to be kept within the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman. And later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. So Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. He wants, wants us to get it right. From, this is what it was supposed to be like at the start. God created partners that together they would cause the world to flourish. They were created in complementary ways, and you can see that in the physicality of a man and a woman. And sex would be a natural part of their relationship, reinforcing intimacy, reinforcing one flesh. And in that most intimate and pleasurable act would occur creation, new birth. Sex was to be beautiful, creative, pleasurable, faithful, with absolutely no regret. What a gift! Sex is not dirty. Sex is a gift from God, and he designed it. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 19 and in Matthew chapter 5, they are like guardrail words to keep people within the, the original boundaries, the original intent, the good intent that God has for his people. By putting in place these boundaries for the expression of sexual intimacy, for that which is created, it, it provides joy. It provides true freedom without regret. 
And with modern science now, we realize how, how much this oneness is reinforced in sexual intimacy. See, a lot of chemicals are released in the brain uh, when, that, when sex happens, there's dopamine, which creates a high and a desire for more. And, and in the woman, there's oxytocin, which is released in a woman, and a chemical called vasopressin released in a man. And when that happens, it creates this emotional glue that says, I am yours, you are mine. It's built into our physicality. Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who wrote a book, Hold On to Your Kids, says this, sex is a potent bonding agent. It creates couples attaches to each other, those who engage in it. Studies have confirmed what most of us will have found out on our own, that making love has a natural bonding effect, evoking powerful emotions of attachment in the brain. He says it's like human contact cement, like it or not. The two, Jesus said, shall become one flesh. It refers to our personhood. It includes our deepest part of us. No wonder the scriptures call, call this in, being intimate or knowing. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's biological, social, emotional oneness and this is something we desire and something that God desired for his people in the right context between a man and a woman committed to one another. But outside of that, sex even emotional adultery is destructive, and there's no such thing as casual sex. So God gave a law to that effect, and Jesus not only reinforces the, reinforces the law, but he gets to the heart of the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A man can't, Jesus particularly focuses on a man, and a man can't help what comes to his mind and, you know, what flashes to him, but he can control how he responds. And so when there's not, when, when there's a dwelling on it, and then a desire, and a desire that wants to play itself out, so he becomes intentional. This is what Jesus is talking about. Not temptation in itself, but an intentional desire that if he had the opportunity, he would go there in the real physical way. Adultery, sex with another person, violates the oneness that God intended. Not just if it actually happens out there, but if it happens here in the heart. And part of the beauty of the Sermon of the Mount is what Jesus does to the law. It turns the outward requirements of the law on its head. Jesus always gets to the heart of the matter. So if you're looking for loopholes like, uh, I'm not married, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm a woman, so this doesn't apply to me. Jesus is talking to men, so it has nothing to do with me. That's sort of how the Pharisees would approach the law, looking for a loophole. What can I get away with? What is the minimal exterior action that I need to present? But Jesus gets to the heart, and he's talking about a marriage relationship because that is the only relationship that is legit in God's eyes for a sexual relationship to occur. In the heart, a man's full desire should be placed on his spouse. To put your desires anywhere else on another person, whether it's in real, a real physical person or whether it's another image, even if only virtual, to do that is to rob the oneness that God wants you to experience. 
So Jesus invites his listeners into a better way, but he doesn't do it with sort of soft, feeble-hearted language. Did you see that? Rather, he uses dramatic language that emphasizes with great demand what will be needed for us to evade the negative, to, to evade the negative consequences, but to enter into the life that he wants for us. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Says it again, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That word hell is Gehenna. It stood for a place just outside of Jerusalem where years ago, kings had, had burned their children and sacrificed to other gods. Now it was like a garbage dump. It was a pit. It was a place of refuse where even animal carcasses would be thrown and there was fire there, and there was stench, and there were maggots and worms that worked their way through the debris there. That's the picture Jesus gives of a person who's going to live outside of the blessing that God intends for them and, and persist in this. It's strong language. But Jesus is love. Like, but in that love, we need to see that he's not indifferent to what we do and how we steward our bodies physically. Jesus is not a whateverist. Why is the Son of God so strong here? Why is he so serious about sex? And I'm going to say because sex is sacred. Sex is a sacred gift from God, designed to be beautiful, designed to be holy most trustworthy and most precious. I think we all know the difference between something that is common and uncommon. When something is rare, it's, it's expensive, it's desired, it's treasured, it's guarded, it's kept. This is an uncommon, this is a rare, this is a special gift for a special time and place. So when it comes to sex and you think about what's going on in our world and when we bring ourselves to hear the words of Jesus this morning, there are two completely different pictures, aren't there, of what it should look like. One is screaming at you every day, whether it's on your electronic device so readily at your fingertips or whether it's you're walking through, uh, picking up your groceries and, and the magazines are shouting at you. The other we have to choose to listen to. In a sense, it's almost like we have to seek it out. The other way, if Jesus is right, though, is the better way. For you as an individual, for you as a couple, if you're married here this morning, and I'm going to say for us as a society. So Joseph Daniel Unwin was an ethnologist. That means he studied people groups, and he taught at Oxford University and Cambridge University. Now, he did this quite a long time ago. His book was published in 1934, and it was entitled Sex and Culture. Listen to what he said. He said that culture that tolerates sexual anarchy is slowly but surely debilitating itself, impairing its collective health and endangering its very survival. This was not a flippant statement for him. See, Unwin studied 80 
primitive tribes and six known civilizations over 5,000 years of history. He found a direct positive correlation between a society's achievement and its exercise of sexual restraint. To quote him, he said, in human records, there is no instance, no instance, there's no exception here. There's no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continence. Now, he wrote a long time ago, so let me explain those words. In other words, before marriage or after marriage, there has to be restraint, sexual restraint within the boundaries of marriage that Jesus talked about. No society has thrived without that in place. Now, Sex provides an immediate gratification. People feel good. The chemicals are released. There is a pleasure. But we need to realize and see and remind ourselves we're part of a big, bigger story, a bigger picture. Resisting improper sexual desires is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Sex is not all there is. There's something much greater. There's a life with God. And a relationship with him. Christian Smith, who is an American sociologist and alive today, current, studies people and especially young adults. And in his studies, he saw that when people had personal encounters with God, it had a profound influence on their vision and practice of sexuality. See, when people experience Jesus, they experience the better way, and it changes how they think about this area of their lives. They bring it under his lordship, and the wise follower of Jesus begins to say no to those improper expressions of sexuality because that person sees a bigger picture, not just for the present, but also for the future. When I was in my teens, I was hitchhiking once, and I got a ride from this uh, woman who was fair bit older than me, but we had a long conversation, and that we started, I started talking with her about Jesus, and, and um, I could tell she was really moved by our conversation, and, but she couldn't go there, even though I think she thought it's probably right, and it's probably true, and she told me why. She said she liked her lifestyle, which was very promiscuous, too much to consider giving her life over to Jesus. I'm thinking how tragic. If we could only see, if we could only remind ourselves how great it is to have a relationship with Jesus, to, to know the creator of the universe and to walk in a personal relationship with him. That's the present and then the future to spend eternity. See, see things, this is as bad as it gets if you're a follower of Jesus. The future is, is so glorious for what God has in store for us. But in that picture, uh, I hate to say this, but sex will probably not be part of that picture. And it sort of irritates me that there's no marriage in heaven. So sex, it probably seems, doesn't even make the cut into the next world. It's not all there is. God has much bigger things in store for us. You can have a fulfilling life today without sex. Jesus would be the obvious case in point. 
So this morning, as we think about the bigger picture and, and God's, God's vision for flourishing in his kingdom and how that applies to how we steward our bodies, it is for the good of the individual and it is for the good of our whole society. It is not just about rules. But when we see God's intent in this area of our lives and we bring it under his lordship, we become that city set on a hill. We become those who shine into a very dark sphere of our society. We become salt and light. Now, I've quoted a lot of people this morning, and I, I just want us to have this bigger picture of how it impacts our society. So let me just read from Rod Draher. He, was, he wrote a book called Sex After Christianity. As he speaks about early centuries Christianity. He says, Paul's teaching on sexual purity and marriage were adopted as liberating, liberating in the pornographic, sexually exploitive Greco-Roman culture of the time. Exploitive especially of slaves and women whose value to pagan males lay chiefly in their ability to produce children and provide sexual pleasure. Christianity, as articulated by Paul, worked a cultural revolution, restraining and channeling male eros, elevating the status of both women and of the human body, and infusing marriage and marital sexuality with love. Missionary Willem Frey commented on early Christianity in this way. One of the most attractive features of the early Christian communities was the radical sexual ethic and their deep commitment to family values. These things drew many people to them who were disillusioned by the promiscuous excesses of what proved to be a declining culture. Then he says this, wouldn't it be wonderful for our church to find such countercultural courage today? A chaste single man, a chaste single woman who for the glory of God keeps himself pure provides a compelling witness to a world that's trying to, like, trying to figure this out. Marriage provides an outlet for sexual desire, but that doesn't mean it solves the problem of lust within. So we need men and women who can say, follow me as I follow Christ, who have victory in this area. After... Uh, J.D. Unwin's book in 1934 came another book in 1956 written by Peterium Sorokin. He was the founder of sociology at Harvard University. I don't think either of these guys were Christians. He wrote a book called The American Sex Revolution, and he said this. If, if they remain committed to sexual restraint, he's talking about the resistors in, in, in a culture and society that's pushing towards sexual anarchy. If those resist, if they remain committed to sexual restraint and monogamous marriage, if these counter-revolutionaries do not themselves succumb to the rising tide of immorality, the process of decline may be halted, he said, and society may regain its mental and moral sanity. It may halt the dangerous drift through complete deterioration. Sounds like salt to me what he's calling for. It's calling for people to be salt. It's calling for us to be light. So in this atmosphere that we live in and hearing the words of Jesus in and around this subject, how do we live? 
How do we live pure in, 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 when there's so many messages to think and live differently? Well, I think there's one undeniable thing that, that should strike us this morning is that we, we must take our commitment to purity seriously. What, Jesus uses this dramatic language like tear your eye out, cut your hand off. I, I don't think he expected anybody to do that because you'd still have an eye that can get you into trouble and you still have a hand that can get you into trouble. And what he's talking about is you've got to take this seriously in the heart. Understand, this is a precious gift for the right context. Take it seriously. It's sacred. Out of that, we need to guard our hearts. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We need to be very diligent, very intentional about watching our hearts. It's interesting how Jesus used the eye and he used the hand. What we see is, in particular for men, can have a huge influence on them. Got to be careful. What are we putting in front of our eyes? What are we choosing to watch? What are we choosing to expose ourselves to? Guard our hearts. In the area of touch, be so careful. Just a brush against someone else, whatever. Like, just be so careful. And what stirs the emotions? What stirs the heart? We need to protect it as we take our commitment seriously. I know that in this whole area of, of sexuality, there's so much brokenness, not just out there, but inside the church among us. And I know that even as I'm talking about this, um, some of you will be extremely uncomfortable. I can easy to feel shame, easy to feel dark. You want to hide. I think we need to remember that Jesus went to the cross, and as we sang in one of the songs this morning, he took upon his shoulders our shame. That's part of what Jesus did. He, he went to the cross, and he died in our place for all of our sins, and that includes our sexual sins. And that because of our relationship with him, we can take these things and bring them to him and be forgiven and walk without shame. Jesus loves us so much that he would do that for us that he doesn't want to leave us in a place that's not intended for us. And so he's calling us higher, knowing that for any of us, can we ever live perfectly in this area and not lust in our heart? It, it points us to the fact that we need him. He's already taken care of the shame. He's already taken care of the penalty of the sin. He's, he's and, and Jesus, you know, he... He's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, so we haven't got to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit yet, but, but these disciples don't know. He's going to send his Holy Spirit to help and to empower. Like there's going to be lots going on so that we can live increasingly up to, the, to what he's called us into. And in that context, where we're struggling, I truly believe we need to bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. We do that with Jesus personally. Instead of running and hiding from him when we mess up, we come to him. Your sin is not so big that his cross didn't take care of it. What you've done is not so bad that you have to crucify yourself first before you come to him. You can come to him right now. 
Even if you've done it, many times you've been involved in pornography or whatever, you can come to him right now and you can bring it into the light and meet with Jesus there. I also believe we need to bring it into the light with one another. And so we need to think about the community of faith followers in Jesus Christ. See, one of the biggest tools of, of the enemy of our souls is that he, he loves to isolate us. He loves to cause our shame to take us to places where we're hidden and nobody knows. But when we bring it into the light with him and then we bring it into the light with people that we can trust that will journey with us, there can be victory. This morning, if you're here and you know you're struggling in the area of sexual purity and you would like to bring it into the light with people that would be willing to walk with you without condemnation to help you, some who have already been there, they've been there before where you are now and God has helped them get to a place of victory and they, have, they love nothing better than to come alongside people and to help them. If you're a guy, um, you can email Cam, our Pastor Cam, and I thought about this email address, like how inappropriate is this? cbroad at centralheights.ca. <laughs> but you can email Cam, and you know, we have a, we have a, um, a, a course we're going to be doing in September called the Conquer Series, just to help men in this area to get free. And if you're a woman, you can inf uh, email info at Central Heights and we'll put you in contact with some of our women leaders that, man, we just, we want to acknowledge right up front, there's a lot of us in this room that struggle with it. That's the reality. God doesn't want to leave us where we are. We want to be the kind of faith community that we can come alongside each other and help us experience that, the victory that Jesus has already purchased at the cross. I could tell you a number of stories. I have two examples of, in my head of young men that I have talked to or journeyed with. One struggled in the area of pornography and was like instantly delivered through prayer. The other has had to fight and continues to fight for every square inch of his freedom. But the victory's gonna happen. See, the message of, of, of sometimes what we hear, it's no use, you can't. And if I read Jesus right, he's not only saying, he is saying, you must. And you, we, can. Joe Dallas uh, came out of a very promiscuous lifestyle. Um, both same-sex and heterosexual. He's a man who's experienced victory. He is now able to reflect on this with these words as he lives his life to help others get free. This freedom, this purity, this better way that I'm talking about this morning. Joe says it is wonderful indeed, wonderful, admirable, and most important, entirely possible. Let me pray for us this morning that these seeds of hope, God will cause them to flower in our lives so that we can be salt and light as we live.